Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like Droplets, Spaces, Kubernetes, Load Balancers, Block Storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Join the community of Slack with us in real time during the show in the Go Time FM channel and go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Listen live at changelog.com slash live or subscribe at changelog.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Go Time. Today, I'm joined with guest Andy Walker. Go ahead and say hi, hi Andy. Hi. I have Carmen and Johnny both with us again. Carmen, you want to say hi first? Hi. Hello. All right. So, and I am John Calhoun. Today, we're going to be talking about bugs, which is kind of ironic, given that we've all had software bugs trying to get today's episode started. <laughs> <laughs> and on top of that, our one guest is missing because she has the bug. So we are switching up the uh, topic for today. Oh, nice. I'm a scab. What we want to talk about a little bit is just bugs, debugging, um, you know, how we prevent bugs, how we track them down, different things like that. So we're just going to go ahead and jump right into that. So where do you guys want to start? So I used to be a like a long time, you know, Perl developer for like a long, long, long time, probably like eight or 10 years, I'd say. And that's kind of how I really cut my teeth in, in enterprise development, did a lot of, you know, back end stuff and mostly just CGI mode Perl. So there was there were a lot of unholy contracts that we had to make to make that work. I remember one of the things that that I really liked about it was that it had a pretty good, you know, you know, quote unquote debugger that you could easily just kind of hook into. And you know, I got kind of uh, in a lot of ways addicted to that. I've noticed that there there really seem to be two types of developers, those who are like just all debugger, all breakpoints all the time. And then those who are more just like drop like a print line in there. And Go is definitely it kind of it lets you do that what with um your variants of um you know print verb and everything. But you know recently I have made the switch from, you know, Vim to starting uh, to use VS Code primarily and the VS Code Go plugin, which of course has Delve integration. And like, I'd say just like a couple weeks ago, I fired it up for the first time and I had a pretty good time. So I think maybe I'll be switching back. You'll be switching back to, to Vim? No, no, no. <laughs> switching back to like using a, a, you know, like a proper debugger a bit more with you know breakpoints and conditionals and and such but by and large usually i don't get too much more sophisticated than like um you know like a print line or like a spew you know oh you mentioned spew yeah 
That's so you kind of jumped right in there with like Go specific types of debugging tools. Oh, okay. Yeah, did you want to get more broad? <laughs> well, yeah. I think um, just talking about debugging, so whether a person coming to this podcast is a Go developer or is coming from a different language, like is there a universal debugging that kind of that spans beyond tools or beyond language ecosystems? Well, I mean, yeah, I do think, though, that you're right. There's certainly a lot of good advice that you can give on general debugging. But I, I think also it's important to consider, like, you know, the, the language that you're working in when you're talking about it, right? And, like the various different, you know, kind of special tools that it, it offers you. But, I mean, like, at the end of the day, like, if you just stick with, like, the judicious use of, of print line statements, you can get really far. Like surprisingly far and like, and almost any language can do that. So. Yeah. I mean, I think the print line statements are interesting because in many ways, I feel like it depends on how well, you know, the code base you're working with. And if you have a sense of where to start looking, because if you're just on the drop in the print lines and you know nothing about the code, you're going to be at it for quite a while. Just trying, I mean, it's probably true with the debugger too, but I feel like when you don't know the code, you don't really even know where to put print statements. So at that point you're just kind of, not sure what's going on. And then I'd say there are certain parts of, it kind of depends on the code you're working on, I guess, to figure it out. Like if you're making closures and things like that, sometimes they can be a little bit more confusing depending on, like a good example I can give is middleware. And like, uh, if you're writing like HTTP stuff and go, and you're writing middleware where like it does something before and after a handler, there can be some weird times where I've found that it's not obvious because like you think that code got called once and eventually comes back to that code and like it can make it seem a little bit weird. So you have to like think about how the code works for the, you know, that type of debugging to work. Yeah, I think having a visual mindset really helps. I can't. So like I've I've had some really, really insidious bugs over the years that after I solved them in less than a day, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so lucky. Right. Like I'm so lucky that I was able to to find that. And I think one of the reasons that is, is because, you know, like, like you say, it's important to know the code first. And at least for me, I have like a very kind of almost visual, you know, kind of map of what I've written in my head. And I can kind of see the flow and it just, it's, it helps me to, to picture it sometimes. I've had some, yeah, I've had some really insidious bugs and I think, I think you make a good point. It's important to really dive in and, and read stuff first. And I think this reminds me of a discussion that I had recently with another developer in terms of like, what like makes a good first issue, right? For like, if you're doing like open source stuff, you know, um, and one of the things I think that's really important for that is locality, right? Like, you know, if, if, if you want to give somebody a crack at something, and uh, you can say, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure that it starts here or that it happens in like this subsystem and like give somebody at least a place to start because yeah, it can be, it can be especially tricky if you're trying to debug something you don't know. Yeah. Do you find that Go bugs are easier to find in other programs or vice versa? I have my own opinion, but I, I'm interested in hearing what you all think first. Yeah, what is your experience, Andy, with Go bugs versus your Perl Enterprise Day bugs? Oh, no, it's so much easier. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it, I mean, okay, yes, there are times when it can be, I think any time that runtime, 
you know, magic. Any anytime that like runtime stuff enters into the equation, or rather, any kind of like runtime. I don't know what the right word would be, like polymorphism, right? Like anytime you're dealing with, like say interfaces or or duct typing, like you would see in Perl and Ruby. Anytime you're dealing with that kind of thing, things can become really crazy, really fast. And at least in Go, a lot of the time, um, you're you know you're not dealing with that as much. I mean, if you're doing a lot of empty interface stuff, maybe. Um, but you know, of course, it's it's best to keep that to. A, you know, a minimum and to lock it down. Also, if you're dealing with, you know, like Seago or unsafe stuff like that, which is why, you know, of course it's, it's best practice to kind of like segregate those into their own little boxes. But yeah, I think I find that, yeah, generally I find it easier. Like, uh, again, like I moved away from primarily using, you know, a debugger like all the time to really not using one at all. Like I only just started using delve a little bit and it's been around for a long time and i think part of what drove me to you know not use a debugger is because there really wasn't one available right for the longest time you couldn't really debug go easily and even you know even now it can be kind of tricky so but delve has come a long way so i think one of the things that i've noticed is that go almost had to make it easier to debug because it's making concurrency so easy that like that adds a whole new level of like want to bang your head off the wall, like confusion and just frustration because like, I agree with like a language like Ruby on rails is what I used before. So I used Ruby and used Ruby on rails and there was so much magic there that debugging some things was just awful. But at the same time you had this whole model of like, there's one web request, most depending on how you have things set up. But a lot of the times you can consider it as like, there's one web request coming in. Like I don't have to worry about, anything running it you know in parallel or anything like that it's just that's all i have to worry about so you can get away with a lot other like a lot more debugging tools and things like that like you know this is this specific user doing these things and he's somehow generating all these queries whereas like in go if i have something running and there's a bunch of things happening in different go routines there's no real guarantee that like what i'm seeing in one area is necessarily that one specific you know thing that i'm trying to track so that can sometimes make it you know, more, like I wouldn't say Go is harder, but I definitely say that like because I, I tend to see more concurrency in Go, that potentially makes it harder, but everything else about Go makes it easier. So it, like, you know, it, it comes out easier in the end. I mean, yeah, I think concurrency, like normal bugs that you encounter in a concurrent environment goes pretty good, right? For like a while now, it has given you the Go routine right? That is most likely to have caused the problem. And that's pretty great. So like when hearing you talk about rails, like rails always used to terrify me <laughs> because, you know, there's all of this, like, uh, what's that? What is that crazy? Like database abstraction model they use? Active record. Active record. Yes. Active record. <laughs> yes. Right. And so there's like all of this, like, crazy like runtime meta programming stuff going on with database access and then always used to just like as somebody in security always used to just terrify the hell out of me oh that's just ruby my friend oh <laughs> uh, that you know no 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 shade no i mean don't get me wrong no shade against ruby but you know uh, back you know back in the old days method missing was my friend you know what i mean yeah. like you can do you can do magical things with that thing yeah yeah that's true method missing was my biggest method so now would that would that basically just hook into like at runtime it would tell you what somebody was trying to call on you that wasn't there 
the basic way it worked was whenever somebody called a method that wasn't present, it would call that. And then you oh, could yeah. define the method as you were going. So like <laughs> a lot of metaprogramming was simply wait for this to get called and then dynamically throw that method in there. And suddenly oh, it's magically God. there. And it, it, it was confusing, but it was also pretty cool at times. I mean, you want to talk about hard to find like bugs that was, you know, half the time that was, you know, the source of my issues, basically looking in places and not realizing, oh, there's something that's actually going to be injecting the code that actually gets run, you know, at some point that I can't quite read. Uh, it's not obvious, right? So I think the biggest problem I have, and this goes back to the question I was asking before, the biggest problem I have these days is they're more design kind of related issues that sort of surface I don't know if I can call it a design bug, but they're more like I don't have sort of runtime kind of issues coming up as much anymore. Like because of Go's compiled nature, I don't, you know, I eliminate an entire class of bugs out of my life, right? But basically now I have a lot of logic bugs, you know, the code compiles and it runs and does the right thing 99% of the time, but, you know, in a particular code path or we're given a particular set of inputs. I get, you know, unexpected behavior, right? Those are the things that I, these days I'm finding to be harder and harder to find. Like, and then you add to that, like, you know, Joe, you're saying, John, add to that, like a layer of, of concurrency, then it, that, yes, can indeed make things a lot you know, harder to, to sort of find. But I think go by design and perhaps by the way it's used, I feel like it's okay. We go out of our way to make things explicit as go developers. And that, I think that has removed like, the cognitive burden of trying to track down like you know stuff some some smart clever things that developers might be using in other languages yeah i mean like when you guys were talking about method missing you know it reminded me of this technique we used to use at my last job for a long time which basically so you know one of the problems that we had was since all of this stuff was in cgi mode Perl. you know you'd get all of this for like every single web request you would get all of this kind of these branching dependencies pulled in and kind of compiled on the fly for every rev request. So we wrote, <laughs> we wrote a library that like basically just abused the uh, Perl universal autoloader to let us basically just do away with imports entirely and just call things by their like fully qualified name. And then if the code path called it, then it would compile that. So like, you know, that kind of thing is what I always think about. Anytime somebody, somebody says to me, oh, you know, go, it's so boring and it's, it's not very expressive. And I'm like, that's great. That's fine. Like, you know, try going in the opposite direction. Like I'll, I'll sacrifice a little bit of that kind of magic if it makes my like, <laughs> if it makes my bugs easier to find, even if it makes things longer. Yeah. And I, I think that's by design. Like I, I think that Go's readability and one way of doing things, you can quickly get a sense of what the code's trying to do, and then also lets you help debug it. Now, debugging, you've talked about a lot of cool things here. One is, depending on the programming language and or possibly the programming paradigm, whether it's an interpreted language or it has a virtual machine or whatnot, you're, you're having different flavors of debugging. So there's no one programming language over another, it's just different flavors. But debugging is just inherently difficult, right? I remember that Kernigan quote, I've used it, probably overused it, you've probably already heard me say it on the show, but that, um, let's see if I can get it right, like, if you, um, debugging is twice as hard as writing a program in the first place, so if you're as clever as you can be when you write it, then how are you ever going to debug it, right? That was Kernigan saying that, so that's just a part of programming no matter what language you get. 
But one of the things I wanted to ask you when you were talking, Andy, was you said, oh, thank goodness I have a good visual uh, memory because then I was able to get this really insidious bug. And I wanted to follow through on that, the idea of what do you mean by that and a visual memory? I don't want this to sound like I'm kind of trumpeting some special ability that I have because I don't, I don't believe it is. It's hard for me to explain, really. Like when I'm debugging, it's an intensely visual process for me. I like to imagine that it's like this for a lot of people, that there's this kind of sticks and boxes model in your head that represents like the layout of the memory and all that stuff and the kind of control flow. And for me, what I see when I'm really, especially when I'm really trying to track something down is it's almost like, um, I don't know, it's like a map or something. It's like a series of interconnected rooms and how they connect with each other. And that, for some reason, there's always that visual component for me. And that's just, I don't know, that helps me. So I have a story about my like most impactful debugging moment or moment as a software engineer. And I've told it on Twitter, but I'll say it here. And it's a story that Rob Pike said, which is like the most useful programming advice that he ever got was when he was working at Bell Labs with Ken Thompson. And I'm going to say this, it's appropriate, right? There are the two creators of Go, Ken Thompson and Rob Pike, but the two of them were pair programming on, I think, like a compiler. And Rob was at the keyboard driving and Ken was standing behind him and they were working fast and things broke off invisibly. And Rob would just jump into, he just reflexively would dig into the problem. And so he'd examine stack traces or he'd put printf statements everywhere. He'd invoke the debugger. So all these things that we talked about in terms of what ways you want to debug. But Ken would just stand and think and he would ignore Rob and he'd ignore the code that Rob just had written. And then after a while, Rob would notice a pattern and it would be like, Ken would often understand the problem before Rob would. And he would just suddenly announce, oh, I know what's wrong. And he usually was correct. And Rob realized that Ken was building this, and this is something that you said, Andy, this mental model of the code. So when something broke, it was an error in Ken's mental model. And so by thinking about how the problem could happen, he'd intuit where that model was wrong or where the code must be not satisfying that mental model. Mm -hmm. I think it's an in intensely personal thing too. I, I mean, I, I, like I say, I'd like to believe that everybody, you know, has the same kind of visual model that I have, but I don't think they do. I think everybody's maybe slightly different, but it is something that's, I think, important to cultivate. And one of the things that, at least to me, that has really helped me is one, working in Go, which is a language that is comparatively, I mean, boring, but I say that as a compliment, right? Like, I, I, I love that about it. But also working in a language like that and then also kind of turning off <laughs> most of my syntax highlighting has really helped out a lot too. And I, I don't want to be that guy who's, you know, the turn off his syntax highlighting hipster, but, you know, cause I do still have some, like I highlight my strings and my, you know, whatever. But um, I think one of the things that's really helped me do that is turning that kind of down somewhat. One of the things that's interesting is like Carmen, you were talking about how one would, you know, Ken would not actually be coding or looking at debuggers or anything like that. And I didn't think about it until you said it, but like, I think that's part of what shaped how I debug now. When I was in school, I was on their, they had like a programming team that did like ACM, ICPC competitions. They're things like Code Jam or Top Coder, basically algorithmic competitions like that. And the way it worked is you had one computer and three people on the team. 
So whenever you like had a bug, it was really wasteful to sit there and try to debug it on the computer because there's two other people who could be solving different problems and you're blocking them. So there was always this rule of if you have a bug, you just immediately print your code and step off the computer and the next person steps on. And like if you want to get like two or three outputs or something to like give you something to work with, you can do that. But the idea was you shouldn't be pulling up the debugger. Like if something's wrong, it's probably a logical issue or something like that. Like you need to go through and make sure you mentally understand what's going on in your code. And that's where a lot of my debugging sort of skills came from, I think. So as a result, I don't pull out a debugger very often, but I think it's just an artifact of that. It's not necessarily that I dislike debuggers. It's just, that's the way I've done it. And I think whenever I see people with the debuggers, they're probably doing the same thing. Like I'd always sort of start with like, here's roughly the code path my code's taking. And I'd pick somewhere in the middle and be like, is my code like, or, you know, can I try to trace to this point? And like, is this thing going wrong by this point? Or is it after this point? And with a debugger, I think it's the same. You're, you're trying to look at something at some point in time and saying, is it what I expected right now? Or is it something wrong? Yeah, and conditional breakpoints can be really powerful for that kind of thing too. But again, you kind of have to know what you are and are expecting and, and what might be wrong and where it might be, you know? And so a lot of the time recently when I've opened up like a, like a debugger debugger, it's cool, but it hasn't, like there's been like, I think one time since I switched to VS Code where I was like, oh, thank God for Delphi and that's so cool. But still <laughs> most of the time, it's just me like popping open a terminal and using like plain old print line so that it's easier to find and remove later. <laughs> yeah, debugging is really just problem solving at its, at, its, at its heart, right? And problem solving, like I've given talks about mental models because I really think the two are intricately connected. And when you said, oh, I'm glad I'm a visual learner, I say, aha, because I feel like what we're trying to teach is our mental maps. You said a mm. map. And that's also, you know, a way of thinking about things or visual spatial things. That's why we whiteboard so much so that we can see the hierarchy in things or we can see the relationship between things. Yeah, I mean, like. I guess it's that BA in CS coming out, but um, <laughs> wait, wait, wait! Repeat that. What is a BA in CS? I, I already uh, know the answer, but I yeah, want you to. Say no, it. I just—it's funny. So yeah, I have a bachelor of arts in computer science, and you know, it's a—it's one of the things I enjoy telling people. They're like, "Oh, you know, I'm so, I'm such an imposter." No, it's—it's it's okay. I have a bachelor of arts in computer science. It's okay. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, one of the things it's like a, as like I guess like a corollary to the the quote that you said before. You know, I sometimes say something to the extent of like debugging would be like my very favorite thing about programming. If it wasn't for all the you know damn bugs I'm trying to track down, right? Like it can be so challenging and so oh so deeply satisfying. Like it's nice to write an <laughs> API and it works the first time, meh, right? But like if if you're finding out like what was causing that type assertion error ended up being like a shadowed error variable, like four or five calls deep, which is a real thing that happened to me. And then you finally fix it and everything works. You're like, oh, yes, I'm so smart, right? You is know? that one like, of those things where nothing, nothing ever worth anything ever came easy? So we're all gluttons for punishment and we need debugging in our lives? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, just it's just for me, like, it's always so, I, like, some of the greatest satisfaction that I've ever had as a programmer has been, like, fixing some insidious, you know, little bug. This episode is brought to you by StrongDM. 
manage and secure remote access to any database, any server on-prem or in the cloud, and environments. They make it easy for DevOps teams to enforce the security and controls InfoSec teams require. So if your engineers need access, you need StrongDM. So what can StrongDM do for your team? First off, more control, less hassle. Grant or revoke access to any database or server in one command. Use your SSO to manage access to every database, every server and environment. Second, total visibility. StrongDM upgrades your audit logs, log every permission change, every query, every SSH, and every RDP command and know who issued those changes. And of course, faster SOC 2 compliance easily enforce access controls and instantly answer auditors' questions. Head to strongdm.com slash go time to learn more and request a free demo. Again, strongdm.com slash go time. I feel like for me, it's it's either the greatest satisfaction or the biggest frustration. Oh yeah. Like there's no in between. It's either I spent all this time and I'm like, are you kidding me? That's what's wrong. Or it's the opposite of like, oh yeah, that was like a really tricky thing and I'm you know, I'm proud of myself for figuring it out. But it's never the middle. It's almost always like, how in the world did I let this slip in there? Or how is this what was you know causing my code to break? Yeah, it's, it's like that. How much do you estimate? I'm just gonna ask a poll here. Everyone, Johnny, Andy, John. What percentage of time do you think you spend validating and debugging your code? Andy? Oh, man. Debugging? Yeah. I don't know. 30%. John? (sighs) On a good day, like 25%. On a bad day, 75%. Wow. (laughs) So we'll average it at 50. (laughs) It's it's probably not, actually. I probably have bad days less often. It probably comes out to around 25, 30%. Johnny? I'd say that that's in line with what I've seen, like usually around 20% of my time, which is in stark contrast with how much time I spend writing tests. I think I spend, these days I spend probably 60% of my time writing tests. Ooh. And then, you know, the, the remainder is just basically trying to come up with a feature. I don't always do TDD. Sometimes I write my tests after. As long as I have tests, all right, I don't care. Uh, come at me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, hey, as long as you unit test everything, it's not going to break, right? Yeah. I probably should have asked that at the start, though. Do we count testing as part of finding a bug? Like, yeah. Because that's hard. Because like when you write the test, it's a postscript. I think it's part of this debugging mindset, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, yeah. I think it absolutely matters. When you test, you are already, it's like your future self already knowing the cases to debug. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, so like it's like somebody said in the comments, Anthony Starks, he says that it's like debugging is like being the detective in a crime movie where you're also the murderer. I was reminded of that because like it's like, the testing that you add afterwards is like the part where like there's the freeze frame and like you know Joe Friday comes on and be like such and such was arraigned in the Supreme Court of like it's like the postscript to the murder mystery. It's where like kind of everything is laid out. You know you're like okay like let's write some let's write some tests that specifically exercise this you know this bug case that I had and you know that's that's a pretty good practice. I don't think a lot of people really talk about. It. It's like you find a bug. You should exercise that, right? Because clearly your unit testing didn't catch it, right? So, in my Go code, I can mention how having table driven tests has helped me tremendously 
and coming up and easily adding cases in my test suite that I otherwise wouldn't even think to test, right? So, you know, when, you know for those who don't know, is basically you set up a structure, you know, you either using map of anonymous structs or whatever, however you want to track that. And basically you just iterate through every single test case that you initialize that map with or that set of uh, that, you know, could be a slice, however you want to track that. And basically in your test code, you just then going through those test cases and then, you know, um, using subtests to, you know, actually run a test. So, whether I have a single test or three, when I start out with, I always start out with table-driven tests. And even if I just have one case in there, because I know I'm going to come back, I'm going to add some more. Uh, and even if I can't think of one right now, I'm going to put, I'm going to start with the one I have, and then I'm going to be basically sitting there and thinking, okay, what are the different ways this could fail? Because when I do that, right, I'm anticipating bugs that could arise from unexpected behavior, right? So by by setting myself up in this mindset, right, I think I truly believe writing, you know, spending time writing tests is has a proportional impact, right, on the number of bugs that you have, at, you know, in your code. Yeah, and I can I can hear like Damien Grisky silently screaming from Canada. So I should probably mention at this point that like, you know, fuzzing is something too <laughs> that we should all consider too. And, and I'm including myself in that, right? Because like, you know, fuzzing is kind of like writing all of those tests, but not having to actually do it. And so that's, and it's definitely something that I've been meaning to do more of. And so I would encourage all of our listeners, myself included, to look into uh, fuzzing and fuzzing your software. Yeah, like even to add what Johnny was saying, I, I don't feel like there's many things more satisfying than like when you have a bug and you just add one line to a test case, you know, like to a table and you can replicate that bug. Like those are the nicest bugs to to basically be presented with because it doesn't take a lot of like effort to reproduce them. It doesn't take a lot of like, it usually doesn't even take as much time to debug either because you can just throw that in there and it's like, okay, now I can go find it, I can replicate it and I know it's not coming back in the future. But whenever there's not a test case that even comes close to it, you're just like, where do I start? What do I do? Like that, because reproducing bugs is a huge, huge issue. Yeah, you say, where do I start and what do I do? And I think of it in the sense of how do you teach debugging skills? And I came to the conclusion that typically, you know, the most effective debugging draws from extensive experience. And so how do you give the novice that experience? And I think these kinds of tests, like table-driven tests, do exactly that. It it starts to get them to build up that that experience and mental model and the scope and the locality of things um, bit by bit by bit so that they can understand it. Well, yeah. And I think that's where good beginner issues are certainly helpful too. You know, for somebody who's learning a new language, one of the things I might recommend in, in terms of like learning how to how to debug is um, well, first of all, pair programming, you know, I think that's probably like step one. Really, uh, if you're, you want to learn debugging skills, is to really just get somebody in, and sit down with either in person or virtually, ideally in person, right? Because it's, it's, it's also kind of a diversity thing, right? You, everybody's minds work differently. And having more than one person there can also help, but especially if it's like somebody with more experience than you. And somebody, you know, who's patient and, you know, is willing to kind of walk through an issue with you. Maybe even they know the solution already themselves. They've just kind of earmarked it for educational purposes. Yeah, the way I, I see that, like as a visual person as well, is that my mental map just needed filling in or my mental map is quite different. And I'm helping because of all of our mental maps, they're just approximations. And we're trying to help bring people along. Mm hmm. Another another thing that occurred to me is really important is um, 
in terms of debugging, always getting like that, especially if it's not something that you found, um, like if, if you're working on an open source problem or something, you know, that, that kind of minimum pathological case, you know, that it will reproduce it in the, the shortest number of lines possible. I think that's like tremendously important, like really distills that, you know, poison pill down to its very most basic essence. And I think that's really, really, really helpful trying to find like, yeah, exactly what causes something and, and have that ready ahead of time for whoever might fix it. So on that note, like Carmen, before the episode, you had mentioned a bug where I think it's in a specific version of Linux. Like when it comes to a bug like that, where it's really, really hard just to say this is the one test case that breaks it. And I think we've all probably seen something like this, probably not at that same scale. Um, but, you know, we've seen a bug like that where there's not an easy way to reproduce it, whether it depends on the time or it depends on multiple things happening, you know, in concurrency, whatever it is. So how do you guys tend to start when you're trying to debug that type of complex issue? At first, you know, it's like the stages of grief, right? Denial. You know, just anger. <laughs> like, what is going on, right? And then, and then... This I, should never happen. Right, like... <laughs> Right, corner case. Like I can't if I if if every time I'd said corner case was an actual corner case, this would be like a very bizarre like sideways stories of wayside school kind of world. Um, but it's not, and so it's like after that, you know, a lot of the time it's just kind of like, okay, where could this possibly be happening? I just throw stuff against the wall. Let's see what what sticks. You know, run it a hundred times, run it a thousand times. Like those are the hardest bugs. Is like those kind of flow control edge case kind of bugs and you know that's at some at the end of the day that's where you know a stack trace is particularly helpful sometimes that's all you get or you know once you've kind of got an idea of like where it's happening this i think this is one of those cases where a debugger can actually be really helpful i mean sure you can still just like drop a bunch of print lines of like all of the adjacent stuff that's around where that site is but with a debugger, like an interactive debugger, I should say, you can say, okay, well, I know this happens one out of every million times, but the reason it happens or appears to happen is because of this. Let me just go ahead and set a conditional breakpoint or something like that. And then when it fires, okay, let's take a look around. Let's see what happens around here. I mean, sometimes you can't do that. And then just drop everything into spew based on that condition, something like that. So in my case... The kind of bug I know we're talking about here is one, <laughs> I pasted the link in for us, John. It's a runtime issue with memory corruption on Linux 5.2. Like that's, that's a change in a kernel. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, your code worked on this particular version of an OS yesterday. And then there was a, maybe there was a fleet roll and you just got a new, you know, kernel upgrade. And then now all of a sudden your code is breaking, right? You did, you changed nothing. Right. All of a sudden, you get these kind of memory corruption issues. Like, where, where do you start with that? Right. I mean, continuous delivery, right? <laughs> and, no, and bisecting. Yeah, but maybe bisecting is that. But this is the reality that many of us live in for 2019, or if this airs 2020, right? <laughs> Which is the the upstream bug. You know, like think about 20 years ago, we would run a thing on a fixed host, right? And we didn't have to worry about, you know, everything was pinned, the OS was pinned, and now everything is moving under our feet. And so we now have to understand several levels of our dependencies, both on the operating system level, or just upstream, right? So upstream bugs are the gnarliest. I mean, like you even mentioned continuous you know, deployment and that continuous integration and all that stuff. 
Which helps to a degree, but I think you also have to remember that what you're creating makes such a big, like, the Go team cannot have continuous deployment or anything like that because if everybody had to reinstall a new version of Go every day, we'd all lose our minds. Um, <laughs> it just wouldn't work. Like, that's not a realistic approach. But, like, if I'm building a website and something's wrong, I can push a new version out tomorrow. Yeah. So I think, like, the way we approach these bugs and, like, the way that we have to, like, consider them so drastically depending on what, you know, what we're making and, and how people are consuming it and all of that. Sure. And yeah, I mean, like, but even if you don't have some kind of continuous integration system, I mean, I know they have got like GoBot or whatever, right? Like internally that does a bunch of this stuff. Um, and, and it's like constantly hammering away at stuff as things are checked in. But, you know, even without something like that, you kind of sometimes just have to do it mentally and take a step back and say, okay, well, you know, it's very Sherlock Holmes, right? You eliminate the, sometimes it's, it's almost, it's different though. Like you can't, you don't have the time to necessarily eliminate like the impossible because like, how do you know what's impossible, right? Sometimes it's, if like, after you've banged your head against something for a little while, it's like it, stepping away both um, physically and metaphorically can really help too. It's like, okay, well, what if it's not me? And I think that's, that's something that I wish I did more is like being able to kind of, take that break earlier and say, okay, well, how likely is it that this is coming from outside? And that's, that's not very common, but it has, you know, there have been a few times where, you know, yeah, like it's an upstream bug, like it's a dependency thing, but you know, thankfully modules are going to save the world. Right. So. <laughs> oh, well, I just, you know, when you say you need to rage quit or you need to go and take a walk, like that's been right. Like, I think that is one of the best things. I know a colleague of mine, Julia Ferrioli, uh, one of the things she would have is a jigsaw puzzle on the table in her dining table. And she would just need to get away from the problem and she would just go relax the mind and just let herself, let it kind of percolate in her mind while she did a jigsaw puzzle. And I don't have that because I don't know the space, but man, I thought that was brilliant. And especially because, you know, I, again, we're talking about problem solving. We're talking about getting a model of the system. The system is now interdependent in multiple layers and levels and you have to check all of those and your knowledge of them. So yeah, I think getting away and um, because sometimes when you're chasing it too hard, you're doubling down on your interpretation of a thing instead of stepping back and saying, are my assumptions even correct in the first place? So I used to smoke, which I'm not encouraging to anybody, but the only upside I ever saw out of it was that if I ever had a problem, I would walk outside and smoke. And that forced me to step away from my computer and everything else. And the other thing that it did was, you know, because you're sitting there and you'd sort of wait till you're finished smoking. Even if you had an idea, you wouldn't rush back to the computer immediately. You'd wait till you finished smoking. So, like, you'd have that, like, oh, maybe this is it. But then you'd stop for a second and think about it a little bit longer and be like, nope, that's not it. And, like, it forced you to sort of step away from the problem and not type on your keyboard and not do the stuff that is in many ways distracting. So... I, like it's one of those things where I've learned it's it's not the smoking it's the stepping away from your computer like your keyboard just like walk away from the keyboard so you can't even type you don't want that temptation and like try to get that like you know couple minutes to yourself to think without you know distracting yourself with everything else and that's been a hugely valuable lesson for me to learn 
Well, who knew that talking about like debugging was going to get so philosophical? Like, you know, we're talking about you know, stepping back, expanding your viewpoint. I'm going to add another one, actually. Let go of your ego. And the concrete advice that I will give for that is this. Like, how many times has have you been like, oh, my God, this is insane. This must be some, like, Turing problem level bug. Like, I can't solve it. And then you finally, finally, you call somebody else over and they're like, didn't you forget, like, a parentheses over there? And you're like, oh, you know, and it's just like... <laughs> Like do that as early as possible. Like, I mean, I wish I could say that I'm good at it and I'm actually terrible at it because, you know, like a lot of programmers, I've, I've got an ego and, you know, my, my self-worth and like how smart I am is like tied up yeah. in, in that. And so like a lot of the time it's like, no, man, no, I'm going to solve myself, whatever. No, but it's let, you know, it, just <laughs> let that go. Have somebody come over, take a look at it. You know, it's going to be better. It'll be fine. I think debugging should absolutely be approached from this socio-emotional, philosophical standpoint. One, because no one tells you when you start out being a software engineer or developer that failure is the default, right? It's, mm-hmm. You know, like, and it's kind of that trope. I think it's the XKCD comment, like, new programmers say, oh, yay, it worked the first time. And then that... Um, Master programmers say kind of dubiously, hmm, it worked the first time. I don't trust that, right? But it just goes to, sh- it just goes to show that you- debugging, again, is problem solving. And as all of you said, it takes up anywhere from a quarter to half of our, our cycles, of our time, just trying to figure it out. And it's normal. And, you know, I would, in my early days, I just thought I wasn't going to cu- be cut out to be a developer because I took it way too personally. Oh, I'm just not smart enough. And then I saw somebody, I paired with someone, as you suggested, Andy, I saw someone who I thought was like the elite developer of that day, it was like five or six years ago, you know, spending 50% of her time kind of looking at it and, and then talking outside and doing the rubber duck and saying, huh, now what's with this? And, and that's when it clicked for me. Like, oh, this is normal. And I just try to say that to anybody new entering into the industry this is normal and this is just part of the process and you're going to enjoy it when you figure it out and some days you're going to need to go out and not have a smoke because we don't condone that but maybe go take a walk (laughs) and a break (laughs) i'm in shame now yeah no (laughs) the other thing yeah i i I won't say it i mean matt always like when matt's on the show he always talks about how like it's impossible to estimate how long something's going to take to build and i think part of that comes down to like you said if you run into a tricky bug there goes an entire day sometimes, like just figuring out what's going on with that bug. And you can't predict that ever. And like, th- that's like part of the reason why every developer is like, oh, you know, we try to guess how long things are going to take. But at the end of the day, you just never really know if it's going to take you know, a day to figure something out or if you're just not going to have any bugs at all. It's just going to be a straightforward thing. Before we transition, basically two techniques that I use that have helped me tremendously in bug hunts or really any throughout my day um, is uh, I use the Pomodoro technique. So at any one time I have a 25 minute timer, basically that's going to audibly you know, ring and says, hey, snap out of it kind of thing. Sometimes it's it's good. Sometimes it snaps me out of my concentration. And I'm like, oh, why did I have this thing on? But most of the time it works out. At least it gives me sort of a, um, you know how when you're in the zone, right, the whole day could go by and you don't realize it. Next thing you, know, you look outside and it's dark out. Well, that's all well and good. But I can't afford to see the whole day go by. <laughs> I have too many, too many balls I'm juggling. So I need to know, I need to be cognizant of the passage of time. So where am I going with this? If I have two Pomodoro's go by, right? I, I hear the bell ring twice, right? And I'm on the same 
problem, trying to troubleshoot the same exact issue, right? I've already had two audibles that tells me, okay, you need to do that step away thing now, right? You need to you need to go for a walk or call somebody in, pair with somebody, whatever it is. But that's that's the best piece. That's the limit I give myself, right? You say, okay, so you spent at least fifty minutes on this thing, so now's a good time to step away. So like I already have that expectation of myself, so that you know I'm basically I'm, I'm trying to remove wean out the whole you know thing you're talking about, Andy, like the ego and the, the the stress you add to yourself. Oh, I should be able to figure this out, right? So you kind of I'm basically saying, hey, you're a professional. Your time is valuable. So spend X amount of time on any one thing. Yeah, that's really helpful advice because it is like also a thing like how much time should I spend on this and how much time is until I walk away. So I need to go get myself a Pomodoro timer because I have done that. I have just, I, it's like nerd pride is on the line and I've spent a day doing this when really I should have been, it would have been better for me to walk away. And I had no visual cue to do that if I didn't have, you know, a schedule going. So that's really good, useful advice. Yeah. I think time boxing is really powerful. I can't do it. I'm working on it so hard. I've got like two hourglasses and like at least three Pomodoro apps. And like every time, like I'll, I'll be like, all right, today's the day. Yep. Today's the day. We're Pomodoroing. We're time boxing this perfectly. And, and like, I get like two or three through it. And it's just, I don't know, maybe it's just a matter of, of, pushing it. I've started doing uh, bullet journaling. That helps a lot for like my yeah. you know, kind of time management. It's like, all right, what's the crap that I need to solve today? Um, you know, reorder it at the end of the day, every, every day. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think Johnny's right. I think time boxing can really help and whatever, whatever hard and fast rule you need to know when to step away from something, you should take it. Um, have, have you ever as a debugging device ever gone to the whiteboard or gone to a sketchbook book and doodled? Um, I don't have a whiteboard anymore you know, when I'm not in the office, but I have a sketchbook full of debugging sketches. I don't know if anyone does that or if that's just me. So all the time. Every year, Walmart has their back to school sale and they have notebooks for like 20 cents or something. And every Blast year I that. buy like 50 of them and my wife looks at me like, why do we need this many notebooks? And I'm like, trust me, I will use them. We should all, you know what, take pictures of some of your sketches and maybe just tweet them out or something and just say debugging sketches or something. Because I think that yeah, would be yeah. lovely, especially as we are <laughs> trying to communicate our mental maps to other people. And sometimes I get, I really love when someone will sketch a thing just, oh God, you know, speaking of the kernel debug, I think it was like 35777 on GitHub, which is the, you know, upstream thing. Um, the person that was in on that, doc, Mr. David Chase, he's a colleague of mine, he on the back of a napkin like uh, talked to me about a certain uh, garbage collector method, but I've saved that sketch because there was like so much goodness in it and I just love sketches. So I really want everyone to just hashtag debug, uh, debug sketches. Debug which, sketches. All right, hashtag debug sketches. Do it. Tweet it out if you hear this. I want it. You can at me. I just want to see everyone's <laughs> sketches. Okay. I honestly think that if everybody took the time to diagram things uh, in the way that makes the most sense to them, like not just computer science, but like so many different things, everything finally clicks when you have that visual kind of representative model in your head that works for you. And for some people it's different, right? Like how you understand like the, you know, real numbers, for example, or something like that, or, or irrational numbers. It's different from everybody, but once you have it, it clicks. And I think that would be a very helpful thing to share because um, sometimes if somebody else has this mental model 
that is just so concise and so perfect. And then you see it for the first time and you're like, all right, that's it forever, right? Like that fundamental misunderstanding is gone from my life forever. So I think that's something we should share more. And I don't think a lot of people realize that they do it, right? They're like, okay, you know, like I got this picture in my head and it represents this concept. And I kind of always return to that anytime I'm trying to like think about it, but everyone's different. So your mental model mm -hmm. might be like the thing that is somebody else's breakthrough and you just kind of casually use it every day. How do we teach debugging skills or how, how would you, like if you had to, to do this with a pairing with a junior, what were some of the things you you use in your toolbox? Pairing. Pairing. That's, that's okay. the only, honestly, that's the only thing I've been able to find that is effective. I mean, there's, I can, I can send them blog posts. I can give them books to read. I can, yeah. I can do all that, but there is something out of sitting down with somebody, you verbalizing your thought process and walking through something along with, sorry, with them, right? And for them to hear how you're navigating, you know, you know, in your mind, how you're navigating the code, what you're thinking as you do, that doesn't mean they're going to think the exact same way. You know, that's the magical thing, right? They're going to hear, they're going to they're gonna pick up, right? They're, you're cueing things for them. Like, oh, okay, I didn't think to think of that, right? So they're picking up things. There's nothing quite like pairing with somebody to go through that process to actually really like demonstrate the art of debugging. Well, and it's like, you know, I think it was Carmen that said earlier, um, debugging is primarily an experienced-based skill. And the only way to quickly teach an experience-based skill is to have somebody with experience stand there with you and give you the hard lessons that they learn uh, as like shortcuts, right? You know, that's the quickest way to like convey that kind of skill, I think. This episode is brought to you by GoCD. With native integrations for Kubernetes and a Helm chart to quickly get started, GoCD is an easy choice for cloud native teams. With GoCD running on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow and let GoCD provision and scale build infrastructure on the fly for you. GoCD installs as a Kubernetes native application, which allows for ease of operations, easily upgrade and maintain GoCD using Helm, scale your build infrastructure elastically with a new elastic agent that uses Kubernetes conventions to dynamically scale GoCD agents. GoCD also has first-class integration with Docker registries, easily compose, track, and visualize deployments on Kubernetes. Learn more and get started at gocd.org slash Kubernetes. Again, gocd.org slash Kubernetes. I think even if we look back at like a school level, I remember seeing like tests or homework or whatever it is where they'd be like, find the bug in this code, but then they'd have you looking for silly things like semicolons missing. And I'm like, if you're going to have me look at printed out code, don't make me look for silly things like that, that the compiler can just tell me what's wrong. Mm -hmm. I think instead it makes more sense to present them with like, here's some code. Uh, maybe it would be like, you know, and here's like how we're going to test it. Like give us a couple test cases that you think would be useful for this code. Um, but then on top of that, you could have them like trace some code and be like, Here's what the code's supposed to be doing. Here's what it's outputting. And you could keep these relatively small, but you could keep it sort of like math problems where it's like, here's a simpler program that you've never seen before. Try to figure out what's causing it to print out this output when it's supposed to have this output or something. And I think if we did that more with students when they're learning to program, 
and focused on this, like you need to understand the logic, not like so many people think about programming is like just putting these words on the screen when most of our job is thinking about how things should logically flow and like thinking about, you know, all of that, not the actual putting words on the screen is, is like the after effect. It's like, you know, it just comes later. Pairing is difficult to do in a remote um, fashion, right? Although the tools are getting better and better and better. I often found that one of the remote ways you can help with debugging is even though it takes more time on the people doing it to maybe narrate your thought process in an issue. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think, well, that and kind of like open, so like one of the things that occurred to me when we were talking about like pair programming is I think that is is one of the things that is more difficult when you're in a primarily remote working environment. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say that it's impossible, but I do think it's more difficult, right? Because sometimes, you know, how many bugs have been solved by hearing somebody fling like an expletive over a cube wall, right? And you're like, what's that guy so mad about? And then you go over there and then all of a sudden, you know, you're the, that other pair of eyes, right? So like, uh, I do think that there are extra steps we kind of have to take to like facilitate that in a remote environment, like, op- you know, open office hours, stuff like that. I think that's important. Reaching out is important. Um, yeah. Getting just, because there is, there is that ego hump to like actually reaching out. It's one thing to just like make kind of passive aggressive, like disgusted sounds and hope that somebody will notice, but it's an, it's completely another to like, actually, yeah type out to somebody and be like, please help me. <laughs> so I think we need to, that's something we need to encourage as much as possible. And, uh, you know, you know, office hours, stuff like that. I think it's, it can be good, but I, you know, I don't have yeah. a full solution. Earlier you'd mentioned like letting go of ego and like just admitting you don't know that something's wrong. And I think sometimes it's not strictly ego. It's the fact that like they're in a different time zone or something. So it's like, I have two hours until they're up. I can't ask for help right now. Um, so like, that's one of the reasons why I, not to get into the whole remote versus like local, but that's one of the reasons why I think junior developers are sometimes better served in a office is because a lot of that stuff is more available. And it's, you don't feel like you're bugging somebody as much to say, can you look over at the screen versus let's bring up the screen share and you know get your mic out and your headset. Like it's, it's a little bit more involved or it feels like it. And I think that can discourage them from doing things that could really help them grow quicker. That is a good point. But you can also like start off early and just be like, like one of the things that I tell people, like, you know, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, but like, I really hate it when people ask to ask instead of just asking or like, like, a what certain, does that mean? Ask well, to ask. Well, certain people will just be like, um, Hey, what's up? And then like three hours later, I'll be like, okay, well, yeah, here I am. And, and then, they'll, then they'll ask me the question. It's like, come on, like, this is the reason we have uh, like, these out-of-band communication channels. Like, I appreciate you trying to be polite. Um, and I think, you know, that's when there's always a very, very polite thing to say, very polite conversation where I'm like, you know, mm. you know, hey, I just, you know, I'm not always here, but I'm always willing to help. So you just, you just throw whatever you want in this channel and I'll come back to it and we'll talk about it then. Like, I think that, that, that is something you need to start with early, especially if somebody's transitioning out of the environment. Just be like, yeah. if you've got a problem, put it in here. I may not be there, but when I get back, we'll talk about this. And so that can kind of help to overcome that, especially if you hit it early. Especially if they know that like it's okay to say, can you help me with this? And then even if they come 15 minutes later and say, oh, I figured it out, like that's okay. I think yeah. some people worry about doing that, but it's like, I don't mind reading a chat that says, can you help me? Never mind, I figured it out. No way, I love that. Wake up in the morning and somebody's like, never mind. I'm like, great. <laughs> yeah. I love that we're talking about maybe the more human side of this kind of thing, right? Like that we also have to debug human intention and debug human emotion. And I think that is also really hard. Well, <laughs> yes. I mean, this, everybody, 
So this is something that I was gonna talk about for the episode that I was supposed to be talking about uh, today, you know, like all the, but like humans, this line of work, as much as we might want to imagine that it's some sort of perfect, like technical meritocracy where ideas speak everything and like the power of your idea. No, this is fundamentally a human endeavor, just like anything mm. else. It's just that we tend to like try and push that away and forget about that. So that makes debugging hard. That in itself is something I feel like we have to debug. It's like a meta, like a meta debugging within the technical debugging. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get too wanky about it, but sure. Like, I feel like I might have gone a little off the rails there. Debug yourself. Yeah. Well, yeah debug you know yourself. I mean? Oh, that could be another hashtag, Johnny. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm here all day. I'm here all day. Thank you. <laughs> So I think that's it. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode of Go Time. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Take care. Until next time. All right. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Go Time. If you're not yet, hang with us in Go for Slack. We have a channel called Go Time FM. Look it up. You'll find us. Hang with us during the live shows, connect with other members of the community, share stories, share code, share coffee recipes, whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions at changelaw.com on every episode. Head to changelaw.com slash go time, find this episode and discuss it with the community. Also, thanks to Fast, the our bandwidth partner, Rollbar for helping us move fast and fix things, and Linode for hosting the ChangeLaw platform. Our music is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more awesome podcasts like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's one feed to rule them all, plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search for changelawmaster in your podcast client. You'll find us. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.